That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnekin. And hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of This Show is All About You. Thank you so much for taking the next hour to spend with me. Uh, While we dig into some uh, subjects maybe that we talk a lot about, but maybe don't dig as deep or spend enough time to really reflect on uh, in ways that maybe can foster connection, even more connection between all of us. And uh, I'm really happy that you're along for the ride today. Uh, if you are listening live, thank you so much for doing so. If you're catching this as a podcast and you can get this as a podcast, wherever you get your podcast conveniently, thank you so much for subscribing and for leaving a review. Really do appreciate that. You can also find out more about me at my website, wordsbyjdk.com, where you can find episodes of this show as long as along with original writing and uh, blog posts from me. You can also find out more about me uh, and connect with me directly at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just Look me up, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N. You'll see a picture of me there. And you can click on whatever button is there to communicate with me, uh, and we can talk. So I would love to do love to do that. Uh, special thanks up front to this show's sponsor, Airway Science for Kids. Uh, Airway Science for Kids is a nonprofit based down in the Portland area that provides life and career uh, pathways, uh, opportunities for underserved youth in aviation and aerospace. And they do so in a very comprehensive, unique, and empowering manner uh, for underserved kids and their families. You can check out all the amazing work they do at their website, airside.org, and you'll be hearing more about them during the show breaks uh, later on. So uh, we're going to do a mailbag day today. I've, I've, it's been a long time since I've actually uh, brought reader comments and questions uh, onto the air, and so there's a lot of reasons I decided to take have a deep breath today that I'll get into and... and uh, kind of read out some things that listeners have been asking me about uh, of late. Uh, But before we get to their questions and comments, let's uh, recap last week's news yet again in the segment I call, What in the World is Going On? This morning, the Ukrainian flag flies in Leman, days after the Russian president declared the strategic town part of Russian territory forever, while accusing the West of trying to weaken and destroy his country. President Zelensky vowing there'll be even more Ukrainian flags hoisted in the Donbass within the week. Zelensky saying this latest win is a clear sign Russia's claims are a farce. Of course, uh, the first, as always, on this show, taking a look at the latest from Ukraine and uh, really the problems for Russia continue unabated. uh, And despite their best attempts to try and stem the tide, if you will, of Ukraine's advances in the east and in the south of the country against Russian forces, they've not been able to do so militarily or politically in what can be seen as a significant escalation uh, potentially of the conflict last week. Uh, Putin recognized the sham uh, election votes in the eastern sections of Ukraine 
uh, where supposedly everybody there said they wanted to join Russia and annexed all of them, meaning brought them into uh, Russian territorial space. Some have argued that this move is, is desperate because what he's trying to do is make it less likely that Zelensky and his NATO allies are going to move into those territories, which he then could claim is an attack on Russian sovereign territory by the West. Others have said it's simply to shore up uh, what could be flagging domestic support, particularly among hardliners in Moscow. It's hard to know one way or the other. Uh, None of us can get inside Putin's skull uh, to know exactly what's going on in there. However, it certainly is a significant development in that, uh, yeah, it it does up the ante to a certain degree. It's certainly not going to stop Ukrainian forces from wanting to take those areas back. Zelensky has made very clear that he intends to bring all the territories that Russia has been conquering since back in 2014, as well as in the last year, back into um, a unified Ukrainian state and that there is no room for negotiation in all of that. A pretty understandable position from where he's at. And of course, the world has condemned these annexations as against international law, which they are. They are just against uh, international opinion. And Putin continues to have problems in that the support that he is receiving from India and China in particular continues to wane. Uh, Their statements are becoming less and less supportive and more and more questioning of the wisdom of Putin continuing on this course uh, in Ukraine. And of course, in the midst of all of that, the suffering still continues for everyday Ukrainians. And meanwhile, at home, uh, his mo- Putin's mobilization order has not gotten any more popular, despite rare admissions from him and others that it hasn't gone well. An estimated 250,000 eligible Russian men have fled the country uh, in various directions to avoid conscription. And there is deepening concern in Russia that eventually uh, Russian authorities will simply close off all the borders and not let anyone out which in some ways would be a return to the, you know, gone full scale return to the Soviet Union as far as that's concerned. So it is not had not been a good week for Putin. It doesn't promise to be uh, better weeks coming up. And of course, there are increasing concerns about what he'll do next. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later in the show. So let's move on to uh, the second big issue going on in the world right now. The Islamic Republic of Iran is no stranger to popular uprisings. The regime cracked down on protests in 2009 and again 10 years later. But the demonstrations sweeping the country today are different. They're being led by young people and are playing out both in the streets and online. After two weeks of protests and brutal government backlash, Iranian activists, predominantly young women, remain defiant. The uh, protests against the Iranian regime uh, continue unabated, moving now into their third week, uh, protesting the death of a 22-year-old woman uh, in the hands of the morality police in Tehran, arrested for not having her hair covered correctly by the uh, by a headscarf, a hijab. And, of course, it's a, about a lot more than that, obviously. It, it, it has served to really blow the lid off of 43 years of growing discontent uh, among um, everyday Iranians about the Islamic Republic since its formation in the revolution of 1979. And what is remarkable about this, yes, as you heard there, that this these protests are being led nationwide in all 34 provinces in Iran, and they're being led predominantly by, by young women who are very, very tech-savvy and are know effectively how to communicate and clearly have found over the last 43 years all the avenues through which they need to effectively communicate and organize these protests. Uh, no one really knows how many people have died in this. Estimates by, uh, by civil, uh, civil rights groups 
have uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of people have been killed by police um, throughout the country. Anywhere from 19 to 25 female journalists have been arrested uh, and kept in prison uh, because of their reporting. And the regime is even threatening Iranian citizens living abroad if they are receiving videos and things like that from people inside Iran and then disseminating them out to the wider world. So much so that uh, there are several Iranian women in this country who are under FBI protection in safe houses in various parts of the country because of the threats that are being issued against them by the Iranian regime itself. Uh, All of those indicative of a regime that has been shaken to its core by what is happening. This is a regime that is used to certainly uh, putting down protests. They've done it a number of times in the past. They're not used to not being able to do it effectively within a couple of weeks. And the fact that these continue to be nationwide and are so open, I mean, and the videos are constant. Uh, You can find them just about anywhere. Women tearing off their uh, hijabs, cutting their hair, dancing in public, doing all these things to flout all the strict rules about their appearance and their decorum uh, under under Iran's law are really bound to shake <laughs> the leaders to their core because this isn't something you can necessarily, it's becoming clearer and clearer, that they can necessarily crack down on with impunity without the rest of the world seeing what's going on. So uh, the very fact that young people are leading this uh, is significant. What is also significant about it is that they're being so successful at it. And as we've all seen many, many times, the availability of information, and sometimes the flip side of it, disinformation, uh, can really shape public opinion and shape large-scale movements. What we're seeing in Iran remains very open-ended, and frankly, that is really remarkable uh, three weeks in. Who knows? How this will turn out, but it certainly is uh, inspiring on a lot of levels to see what Iranian women are willing to do and what they're willing to risk uh, for their own present and their futures. Okay, so with those two things, let's jump into today's show. I'm going to spend some time uh, kind of letting everybody know what other listeners are thinking about and uh, what they're asking about. And the reason I had this idea was because after last week's episode where I talked uh, really addressed male listeners of this show to really be thinking about um, what it is that women uh, in this country in particular face every day and some of the, the key differences in perceptions, perspectives, experiences that women can have just on, on something as simple as going out to the grocery store are worth us thinking about. And I got a lot of responses from uh, a lot of women about the show, a lot of expressions of appreciation uh, for talking about that and for asking men some really tough questions about their own assumptions. And there were a lot of the, of the comments and uh, things like that from, from women listeners really just added more evidence and more examples to the things I'd already talked about. I had many write in with their own uh, stories about going to the grocery store and being followed. Uh, in the grocery store, you know, men switching lines behind them when they would go into different checkout lines or in parking lots or, you know, changing outfits. Something as simple as going to work, changing outfits six different times, trying to find that balance between feeling good and being respected in the workplace. Uh, there were so many different examples that that if I would if I would tell you every single story, we wouldn't be able to fit it in into this show today. And what it reinforced to me was I clearly hit on something last week that women experience on a lot of levels and, in addition, really feel that most men 
don't really either pay attention to, aren't aware of, or are afraid to discuss either with the women in their lives or with other men. And I had focused a lot last week on on challenging uh, men to really talk to their male friends about these kinds of things. And I stand by that. Interestingly enough, though, alongside that, from all the all the feedback I got from women, I only heard back from one man, one male listener, and it was my dad. <laughs> and my dad appreciated it and said, you know, I, I have to take a good look at, at, you know, some of these things that I've internalized in my life uh, about women as this, you know, as he called himself a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male. Uh, and I appreciated that, but I thought it was significant that he was the only man I heard back from. And when I mentioned that uh, to some, some female friends of mine, one in particular said, well, yeah, man, you're, you're breaking the rules. <laughs> Men aren't supposed to talk about that, right? That's, that's supposed to be an area you don't go to. Well, no, we're going to go there because, frankly, it's something that I think is becoming increasingly clear is a larger problem. Certainly uh, what's happening in Iran is an extreme example of that. But even in, our, in American society, especially in American society, it sure seems more and more like these issues of what women face, what they endure, what they experience, um, are getting more notice on one hand, but also they're sometimes getting more notice because not enough people are willing to confront the realities of what women face on a daily basis in this country, whether it's really overt uh, sexism and misogyny, whether it's covert, whether it's um, not the same opportunities uh, and just a different life experience. Those things in a country that wants to be a more equal and perfect society seems to me needs to be part of the larger conversation all the time. And so I want to thank all those listeners uh, who reached out to share those stories. Thank you so much for doing so. Uh, certainly an educational thing for me, but hopefully more educational too for other listeners. So um, one question that I did get from one uh, female listener who appreciated me kind of asking men to really take a good look at themselves and their own assumptions uh, about women and how they view them. Uh, asked this, how can men who want to do better at this start doing better? And I mentioned this last week, but I think it's worth reiterating. Uh, start by listening. I would encourage men to listen and to be open to hearing these stories uh, from, and start with the people that you're most comfortable with in your life. Uh, and maybe that's the most important, your partners, your children, your daughters in particular, maybe your, your mom or your grandmother. They're all going to have stories about this type of, extra, I guess, almost extra vigilant uh, behavior or of excellent extra vigilance they feel they must have in society or this larger awareness they have of maybe it's having to prove themselves more, the sense they have to prove themselves more. They have to protect themselves that they can't do the things that they want to do because they're either going to be barred for them or it's going to be dangerous for them to do so. Listen, don't be afraid to ask questions. And hold a safe space for it rather than having an opinion or trying to talk uh, this person out of their sense of reality. Listen, try to appreciate how that must feel. Men have a tendency to want to fix things or to say, well, this, this can't be true or this can't be true or downplay, which honestly is usually a protection mechanism for not really being able to do, telling themselves they can't do anything at all. They can. And I think it's really important for men to talk to other men about these things and avoid having conversations that are about, yeah, women are like, they're so difficult to understand or, you know, you never know where they're going to go. Any man who has a woman in his life that he cares about, 
should care about having these types of conversations and should be open to a little bit of discomfort in hearing what they have to say and open to some discomfort in taking a good look at their own attitudes and assumptions and practices over time. That's just a part for me of being human and the fear of what that might feel like or that might feel icky should not, in my opinion, dissuade any of us from having those conversations or sitting through them because that's frankly, that's when the most growth happens. So that's my response to that. Uh, another listener asked, uh, and I just got this one today. I had mentioned women's soccer last time that that's sort of where this had kicked off. I went to a women's soccer match, professional women's soccer match down in Portland. And just today, uh, the uh, national women's soccer league, which is the large uh, women's uh, professional soccer league in this country, a, a report came out today, an independent report reviewing a series of incidences that happened last year that resulted in the uh, the stepping down of the league's commissioner as well as the firing or stepping down of over half the league's coaches, reports of uh, systemic emotional and verbal abuse of players by coaches, most of the coaches male, and uh, regular sexual misconduct uh, and abuse among uh, coaches and staff of players uh, within the league over the last handful of years. And the report, the independent report, found that these indeed had been rampant, that uh, complaints by players and reports by players had either been downplayed or ignored by the majority of teams, and that there had actually been an effort to really silence uh, a lot of criticisms that players were bringing forward. Now, the league has certainly uh, stepped up in the last year in addressing that, uh, but the stories in this report are are pretty shocking, pretty harrowing, uh, but are worth everyone taking a look at, particularly men, to take a look at this. And so how do I feel about it? Well, I, it's horrible. And I, I'm glad that uh, those, those things are being addressed. I'm glad that the report came out. And it is, in, it is incumbent upon the league and its current commissioners and its current coaches to not only change the culture within the league, but to make sure that they become, over time, the standard bearer for other leagues to follow on this question. And God knows professional sports leagues have a lot of different problems, uh, but this certainly, you know, regular sexual misconduct and emotional abuse uh, can exist in a lot of forms in a lot of ways over a lot of things. And my hope is, is that because this report is getting an enormous amount of attention in the sports world as well as in the larger uh, news cycle, that uh, there'll be opportunities for those types of conversations then. Okay. So let's get back to the mailbag when we come back from our first break on this show is all about you. Have some serious conver- some serious topics to look at, but also some pretty fun ones. So come on back and let's spend some more time on this show is all about you. Stick around. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Don't 
Ask Me to Talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you. I'm your host, J.D.K. Winnikin, dipping into the mailbag this week. Uh, to uh, kind of share with you what uh, what listeners of this show have been sending to me and asking me about. And, uh, you know, before the break, talked a little bit about last week's episode, uh, that if you missed it, make sure you go back uh, and listen at your favorite podcast provider. Um, but, you know, there were other things that uh, people asked about. And, of course, one of the things I get asked the most about is what's going on in Ukraine. Part of that is because I talk about it every week on this show. That is a commitment that I have I have made uh, to myself to continue to talk about it, but it's also because I'm the longtime listeners know I'm a historian uh, by background and by training, and this is an area of the world that I have studied uh, at length, and it's an area that uh, I know and that I'm interested in, and so uh, a lot of listeners do ask. So let's uh, let's take a look at a lot of uh, some questions here. Anyway, uh, this was a question from a listener in Denver, Colorado. What is the biggest thing about the Ukraine war that you think people are missing or not really considering? Well, I'm not sure there's just one thing. Uh, it's, it's easy for this to feel overwhelming because there are so many different facets to this. Uh, but I'm just going to go with the first thing that came to my mind when uh, I read this question. And that is uh, there are far too many people out there trying to parse Putin's words. Like we're trying to read tea leaves or something like that, you know, and it's and it's a regular it's a normal thing to do. However, I think sometimes history has shown us that with dictators like him, people who are really separated because of their own actions over a number of years from the reality of what's going on in the world and are only surrounded by people who tell them what they want to hear because they fear them, which those same people like they aren't connected to what is really happening. Yet, the flip side of that is that they feel very, very sure of what they are saying. And so because of that, I think this is what history shows us. We should take very seriously what people like Vladimir Putin say. Literally, without trying to read anything into it. There might be, you know, some political doublespeak or triplespeak going on. But that tends to be us kind of putting on our own understanding of how politicians act, separate from cultural context historical context, which is particularly dangerous to do in the West when it comes to Russia, because generally speaking, we don't really understand Russian mindsets as much as we understand Western ones. And it's the same from what Russian mindsets, understanding Western ones, the other direction. I think we need to take Putin at his word that he is willing to go to whatever lengths it takes to defend his territory. And everybody's worried about him using tactical nukes. And if you read uh, a lot of what uh, pundits are saying right now, the, the increase or the likelihood of him using tactical nuclear weapons, which means battlefield nuclear weapons, uh, is going up. Well, uh, I'm not sure what anybody's gauging that on. Uh, you know, certainly you don't have a U.S. intelligence analyst coming out and saying that overtly. These are people sort of watching everything from the outside and think tanks and universities and whatnot. 
But certainly that risk is there. These are weapons that militaries have in their arsenal. And Putin's choices up until this point that, again, he's making in a vacuum. He's making on his own without getting a full picture of what's going on. Uh, If he feels backed into a corner, is it possible that he could use nukes? I suppose. But what is going to be the determining factor in that, I don't think, is going to be something that because we in the West act a certain way or don't act in a certain way can either prevent or make more likely. It's an uncomfortable reality that Putin can do whatever he chooses to do in this situation. He can. And we might think that he might not because China and India will pull the plug on their support or that the Western response will be really big, that his own people will turn against him. Sure, those are all potentially rational responses from the rest of the world that he might consider. But he might not. (laughs) He might not care about these things. And so what I would say to that question is, we need to take some of these guys at their word that they mean what they say, even if we think it's really crazy or really dangerous. You know, and so the question then becomes, if we take them at their word, then the question becomes, what should we continue to do to support Ukraine in all of this? And the unanimity that continues to exist, not just among political entities, but among the world at large, that the right thing to do is to continue to support Ukraine has continued to be unshakable. And I think that's significant. Okay, another question. This one from uh, here locally in the Puget Sound. Uh, Could Putin, someone's asked, be trying to draw the U.S. into a war on purpose? Because then it would be a way for Putin to save face, that he could step back because he lost, quote unquote, to the United States in a war and not to tiny Ukraine. Uh, And Ukraine's not tiny. It's the size of Texas. But, you know, that's that's the idea. Uh, and when I first read this question, I kind of chuckled at it. And uh, but then I saw the links that were shared. There are a number of different websites out there speculating uh, about what Putin is up to. Kind of ties back into what I just said before. Uh, this one seems to me to be the really the fantasies of uh, people who really want to take a look at all the different possibilities of what Putin might be thinking. Unfortunately, not all websites are equal. And certainly the the qualifications of of different writers and who they write for and and that type of thing and what their backgrounds are and what their experiences are vary widely from site to site, person to person, that type of thing. It can be really tough to discern what's quality and what's not. What I can say is that idea that Putin would want to lose to the U.S. and that would be better for him politically than losing to Ukraine is absolutely out of bounds. Um, I can't think of anything that would be worse for a Russian leader than to turn to his people and say, yeah, I lost a war to the United States. The very thing that's driving Putin's entire worldview to begin with is that the United States won the Cold War over the Soviet Union. He called it the greatest, greatest political catastrophe of the 20th century. And the 20th century included two world wars and the Holocaust and a whole bunch of other really bad things. But he considered the collapse of the Soviet Union to be the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. That he pins directly upon the U.S., as he should. The U.S., you know, in that sense, was the victor in the Cold War and the Soviet Union was not and it ceased to exist. So the very idea that from that context alone, Putin would be like, well, I can probably sell it more if I lose to the U.S., I don't think shows any sort of understanding of of the political realities in Russia, of Putin's own life experience and how he views the world 
and really any of those realities. And yet there is a lot of speculation out there uh, along this line. And I just I just don't see it. And so far, the United States and their NATO allies have stayed on the sidelines to the point that they're really what they're doing is shipping in billions of dollars worth of arms. And the Ukrainians are doing just fine with that. Thank you very much. Uh, if he uses if Putin uses tactical nukes, which when people ask what tactical nukes are, they're simply for the battlefield. However, tactical nukes today have the same uh, about the same power as the Hiroshima bombs that were used in World War II. So we're talking about a very significant nuclear weapon when we talk about tactical nukes. Should he use those? Will that change the Western response? It might. But. Those conversations are being had, certainly at the levels that they need to be had. They're not going to be sharing a whole lot of that with us because in deterrence in the world, being vague is your best option. (laughs) Being specific about what you'll do in certain circumstances is not the best option, which is why every time President Biden or anybody else is asked to give specifics, they don't. Because you want the mystery to exist. You hope that that will prevent Putin from taking any overt steps if you're not willing to show the cards that you have in your hand. Okay, that was another one. Another question to kind of shift topics a little bit. Uh, Haven't heard you talk about uh, domestic politics in a while, J.D. Uh, What are your thoughts on the upcoming midterm elections? What issue is the biggest one that will drive voters to the polls? Well, my answer to the second one is we'll find out after (laughs) after the election. We'll have a good idea then. I'm not sure we're going to have a good idea before then of what will be the big driver of people uh, to the polls. Um, my thoughts on it, though, is if there is one thing that is sort of hanging over all of this, uh, and for some people, this is a good thing. For most people, increasingly numbers in this country, it's a bad thing. Uh, Donald Trump is hanging over all of this, whether people want him to or not. And certainly he's exactly where he wants to be uh, with people talking about him and continuing to be the so-called uh, kingmaker in the Republican Party. Uh, but certainly all of his legal problems uh, a number of his statements continue to draw a lot of attention and condemnation in some quarters. And, and unfortunately, not a lot of condemnation in uh, within his own party. Of, but even that's beginning to wane a little bit. All those things when he does this simply just continues to inject him into the election conversations, which from the point of view of Democrats is a good thing. Uh, from the point of view of his base is also a good thing. For all the people that are in the middle who don't identify either as a Democrat or don't identify as a as a radical Republican, uh, jury's still out. It'll be interesting to see. I said after the Dobbs decision earlier this year that overturned uh, the Roe v. Wade decision from 1973 that I thought that was going to unleash an enormous amount of electoral uh, angst, anger, and response from women and supporters of women in this country. I stand by that. I think that is going to be a very big issue. Whether that is enough to uh, really prevent uh, the Republicans from taking uh, control again of the House or the Senate remains to be seen. But they have an uphill battle, one that, frankly, uh, considering how the last year has gone uh, for President Biden and his low approval ratings, a year that should be going better. Um, The reason why it's not for Republicans is because Trump continues to be Trump. And at some point, one needs to ask is when is enough is enough. Uh, For me, with him, the the line was passed a long time ago. Uh, 
and it looks like more and more people are getting to that point as well. Unfortunately, uh, he's escalating his rhetoric to the point of, of, you know, really suggesting that political violence would be acceptable on his behalf or against uh, any Democrats who win parties in the midterm elections. And that's that's a scary prospect, as a number of people have been talking about of late. So that's my thought there. We aren't going to know until it's over. But uh, I do think, at least right now, the way things are going, um, it's not going to go as well for Republicans as uh, they had hoped or once thought that they would just a little while ago. Uh, another question. This one from Florida. Uh, I hope you're doing well down there. Uh, those of you in Florida and recovering quickly. Uh, what the hell just happened in Italy? That was the question <laughs> I got. Uh, I haven't addressed this. Yes. Uh, last week, I believe, uh, Italy elected its first far right political government since the fascist party of Benito Mussolini prior to World War II. And it certainly grabbed a lot of news headlines when it happened. Uh, I didn't talk about it on this show, mainly because other things I wanted to talk about instead. Uh, but yeah, that is that significant. A lot of people are saying that is significant. Uh, again, remains to be seen. And I know that, that it can be aggravating for people when I say that. But I'm a historian. Things in the moment don't always tell us what they're going to mean later on. In fact, they rarely do. It takes time for these to play out. It is significant enough that enough time has gone by that uh, Italian collective memory of fascism has drifted uh, so far away that there are plenty of people willing to elect a far-right government. That doesn't mean that the Italians you know, are becoming more fascist than they were before. Doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that. But there is a larger trend that we are seeing in Europe of hard far-right governments coming to power. And these are in parliamentary systems, systems that have multiple political parties, not just two dominant ones like in the United States. <clears throat> and so they have to build coalitions in order to effectively govern. They have to work with other political parties in their parliaments in order to have you know 51% of votes on anything to make changes in everything from defense policy to uh, you know what, uh, what you're going to do with um, what you're going to do with various laws around education, uh, political expression, you name it. There's, there's a lot more to it than that. And in Europe, that parliamentary system exists in part to make it difficult for single parties on the far right, on the far left, or anywhere else to dominate politics because the lessons that they drew from the 20th century, it's really good to not have monolithic parties in power. Okay, so now Italy also is famously really difficult to govern. Um, governments rise and fall there all the time. There's a chance that this government won't even be able to effectively rule and will have to dissolve its own government in order to call for new elections again. So who knows what this is necessarily going to mean in Italy. But Hungary and Poland have elected uh, far-right governments in recent years, and that certainly can put at risk because of their, their strident uh, nationalism and oftentimes, to be generous, skepticism about their neighbors, either on a political level, on a racial level, a religious level. That makes it difficult for European cohesion in the European Union uh, and in NATO to stick together. It means that more work has to be done to keep everybody else on the same page. Uh, hard to tell how much Italy is going to try to be a stick in the mud in all of that. However, there are a lot of things working in favor of those who are not in the far right uh, in Italy, and that is Italy is fully integrated into the European system, and uh, economic shocks, political shocks of like will have very real consequences for everyday Italians 
if the country goes in too radical of a direction. And if that happens, chances are that government's not going to last and they'll get voted out. Nevertheless, it does feel significant <laughs> because it is. It shows that the lessons that we learn from history only last generationally fully among the people who experienced them or heard firsthand stories about them. And as time goes by, they become more and more part of a larger series of stories in history, and they take intentionality among everyday people for them to stay alive both as stories and as lessons and warnings uh, for the present for, for the future. Okay. Uh, you know what? Let's take one more break right here and we'll get into a few uh, hopefully not so serious <laughs> questions on the other end of the break. So uh, come on back uh, to get more uh, mailbag questions here on this show is all about you. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids. Providing aerospace for all. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you dipping into the mailbag today uh, to answer questions from readers. And because of a lot of what I cover on the show, uh, you know, we're jumping around the world quite a bit, talking about Ukraine, talking about Italy, talking about what's happening uh, with women in this country, with the midterm elections, that type of thing. Uh, and certainly as we get closer to the elections, by the way, I will be talking about them a little bit more. I've got some got some other thoughts, some bigger perspectives to to take a look at here. Uh, but to answer a few more questions. Uh, from listeners, and thank you to all those who write in. I really do appreciate it. Uh, this is uh, this is a question from down in California. Uh, how is your coaching certification process going? Uh, I mentioned, I realized, I mentioned on this show a while ago that uh, one of the things that I started on is I started doing a coaching certification, I guess a, a form of life coaching uh, certification program at the Human Potential Institute, and that process has been going very well. Thanks for asking, Southern California. Uh, it's going very well. It's almost done, as a matter of fact. And uh, it certainly has taught me a lot. And for those uh, listeners who've been with me for a really long time, you all know, and hopefully you're listening to the podcast that I co-host with uh, Tawny Santabria called Breaking Up With Our BS, that uh, you can find wherever you find your podcasts as well. And on that, we talk a lot about uh, the principles and the ideas that are behind uh, this type of coaching that has everything to do with recognizing that our emotions are not our enemies, even the ones that don't feel too good, and that uh, we can spend a lot of time stressing ourselves out needlessly by the stories we tell ourselves in our head about what something might mean when something 
feels scary, whether we're talking about something in our personal lives or something going on in Ukraine or Iran or in the midterm elections, that really the biggest source of our stress is the stories we make up out of the fear that comes up or the, the grief or the sadness. And this type of coaching is about how do we connect with that, not just in our minds, but specifically in our bodies, keep ourselves calm and be able to develop a little more resilience uh, to face those things and maybe make better choices about how we respond to all the, the stressors in our life. I've found a lot of meaning uh, and a lot of value in just the process of this certification to become this type of coach. And it's, um, it's the type of thing that when I'm done, not only will I be able to apply it in workplaces that want to hire me to work with their staff, but also with one-on-one clients and, and that type of thing. It's a, it's a really good uh, opportunity for me. But what I have found is that what I'm learning in there kind of seeps into everything else. And so uh, listening to this show, going back, listening to episodes, I can hear a lot of what I'm learning and experiencing in that certification process making its way uh, <laughs> into the show. And it's shaping a lot of my perspectives on some things. And, uh, and I guess what I could say is like with the things going on in the world, to recognize that they are scary, uh, that it's okay that they're scary. And the fact that they are scary doesn't mean we have to shut down or doesn't mean we have to run away. It doesn't mean we have to medicate our feelings. It doesn't mean we have to lash out. Uh, it doesn't mean we have to do anything because we can be okay, at least in this moment, most of the time with just ourselves, right? That we're still okay even as all these things are going on. And so being able to help people, and I've been doing a lot of practice with practice clients and things like that, being able to help people with these types of things has, has really proven to be really rewarding and exciting for me. And I'm looking forward to finishing my certification here uh, in just a couple of months. And so I'll be talking more about that as it comes along, but I hadn't talked about it in a while. So uh, thanks Southern California for, for reaching out and asking about it. I appreciate that. All right. This one um, I've been kind of looking forward to talk to talking about uh, a few episodes ago and a couple to- other times over the life of this show. I have dedicated shows to baseball, and I have mentioned that I am a, a diehard Seattle Mariners fan and have been since I was a very young boy living in Hawaii, and that whole story is out there for you to find. Uh, and listen, I won't recap it here. However, if you're not a sports fan, here's what happened. This was the question that I got from multiple uh, directions and multiple places. Please tell us what you did and where you were when the Mariners ended their playoff drought this past Friday. Uh for those of you who don't follow sports that much, uh, the Seattle Mariners baseball team here in town, uh, until Friday night, just a few nights ago, had the record longest streak of years that had gone by without them making the playoffs. More, It was a longer streak than any other team in any of the major North American sports leagues. So Major League Baseball, the National Football League, the National Basketball Association, the National Hockey League, uh, they all had teams that within the last... 20 years, which is as long as the drought has been for the Mariners, have made the playoffs. Uh, it is not the top of the list. That you, it's not a list you want to be on the top of, that you have the longest drought of never going to the playoffs. And it's been tough to be a Mariners fan, to say it lightly, uh, over the last 20 years. So on Friday, though, they finally broke that streak. Uh, they won a game in the most dramatic fashion possible before a sellout crowd. It was something out of a movie. Uh, to break that streak. Uh, what happened was in a, a 1-1 game against the Oakland A's, bottom of the ninth, two outs, three balls and two strikes, which is the maximum count you get. Something has to happen. Somebody either has to walk, 
strike out, fly out, get a hit, something like that. Something has to happen. On that count, uh, Mariners catcher Cal Raleigh, who was a pinch hitter, meaning he didn't play the entire game. He was brought in just in that moment to try and get a hit. Hit a home run uh, in front of a sold-out crowd to send the Mariners to the playoffs for the first time in 20 years. And uh, I wasn't in the park uh, that day. Tickets were a little too expensive. (laughs) So I wasn't at the park. I was actually at a local pub watching with a, uh, a bunch of temporary friends, I guess you could say. I was, I was with some people that I knew, uh, some friends. But also there were a lot of people in there watching the game. And the home run kind of came out of nowhere. The game had been a slog. It was really tough for anybody to score runs. The tension was palpable. Everyone in the stadium was hanging on every pitch. The announcers were talking about it. And so when this home run was hit, it was like nobody expected it. And what I will remember of that moment is this. Sitting at this table away from the bar, watching it on the big screen. And all of a sudden he hit the ball and it was clear it was probably going out if it stayed fair. And when it was clear it stayed fair, all I remember was a lot of arms in the air, along with a lot of napkins, straws, ice cubes, (laughs) a lot of screaming, a lot of yelling. It caught everyone by surprise. And before I knew what was happening, I was hugging complete strangers, uh, jumping up and down. Everybody's yelling. Uh, you know, trying to get an eye on what's happening in the ballpark. It was pandemonium. And uh, the videos later of all these different places where people were all all throughout the city, everything looked exactly the same. Uh, the only thing that it lacked was uh, the exploding lights from the movie The Natural. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that movie with Robert Redford. But at the end of that movie, he hits a home run, spoiler alert, hits a home run in a very dramatic fashion. And he hits the lights of the stadium and they all explode as he's running around the bases and there's these showers of, of sparks all around as he's surrounding the bases, a very dramatic moment. That's all this was lacking. Uh, there was certainly, I guess, explosions of ice and straws and napkins and all that. Uh, but that's really all it was lacking. And it was a very emotional moment. Uh, for me, I, I go to about probably on average a dozen Mariner games every season. They play 81 games at home every year. So I go to at least a dozen. Some years I've gone to more. Some years I've gone to less, but I've lived in the Seattle area for, for 10 years now. And so that's 120, 125 games just in the last 10 years. And I went to dozens more before that, with, before I lived here. So it's a lot of games in the last 20 years that I've gone where the Mariners are either not in the playoffs, there's no chance for them to make the playoffs, they might actually be in last place, and you're really just going to the ball game because you love baseball and you're hoping you see a glimpse of a future that's better than the present that you're in. And so that gets really tough for any fan of any sports team to have that kind of drought where you're not going to get to you know, the playoffs to have a chance to win a championship. The Mariners remain the only Major League Baseball team to never play in a World Series. Every other team has at least played in the World Series. There are other teams who haven't won it, but they're the only one who hasn't played in it. And so that's really tough, and this city really wants to love baseball and really does love the Mariners, but have over 20 years have been, have gotten more and more disillusioned in some quarters. And so it got to the point where really the excitement, people only really allowed themselves to get excited about it on Friday, the day of the game where they could actually clinch. Everyone went in knowing that if the Mariners won that night, they were going to be in the playoffs. And if they lost, they were going to have to try again the next day. Um, and they won in such a storybook fashion that if you had written that up as fiction, uh, 
nobody would have believed it and said, oh, that's not believable. That's way too storybook. Uh, but it was a perfect way uh, for it to end. And Cal Raleigh, the catcher, he's 23 years old. He's from North Carolina. <laughs> you know, the team is very young and they had, you know, most of them weren't even born or were still toddlers uh, when uh, when the streak began 20 years ago. So for them, I felt bad for them. I mean, they, they're carrying the burden that, that the city has held on to and given energy towards that has nothing to do with them. They just happen to be wearing the same uniforms as the guys who've been trying to get to the playoffs for the last 20 years. But they handled it really well. They had a lot of fun watching them uh, celebrate in the dugout and then coming out and celebrating with the fans. Fans didn't leave the ballpark for like two hours. Uh, it was it was pandemonium in there. The next day, uh, I went to the ball game. The next day, which was a day game, and so it started less than you know a little over twelve hours uh, after the last one ended. And it's like there'd been an exorcism in that park. There was no angst. Everybody's walking around smiling. Everybody's giving each other high fives for you know no reason whatsoever, or at least no discernible reason, um, other than they were just being happy. Uh, and, uh, the lineup for the Mariners that day didn't have their stars in it. And there were a lot of jokes flying around about why that was considering the celebrations the night before. I'll let you, uh, put two and two together on that. Uh, but that's, that's where I was and uh, I enjoyed the game very much. They actually won the next day as well, which was pretty fun. It's always good to see your team win. And this coming weekend, uh, the playoffs will begin. And so by the time this show's on again, next Monday, I'll have a good idea of uh, how the Mariners did in the first round of the playoffs, whether they uh, fell out, lost lost those games, or whether they're moving on to the next level. So it moves quickly. It's exciting. Uh, no, I don't have tickets to go to any of those games yet if they happen. They're way too expensive for me, but that that doesn't matter. Uh, just the fact that uh, you know that they're in the playoffs, that they have an opportunity to do well, is really exciting, and they've set themselves up well to be really good for years coming forward, and that's really all you can ask. And uh, in Seattle, that's a really big deal. So it's exciting. Uh, it was really exciting. I had a hard time going to sleep that night. I watched all the video replays time and time again uh, and listened to interviews and read all the blog posts of people who were overjoyed and, and all that. It's, it's pretty fun uh, when a big civic event like that happens and people are excited about it. So uh, that's where I was <laughs> on that day. So, and, you know, and it got me thinking, you know, to kind of wrap this up. Uh, it got me thinking about all the different things that, you know, when, w- whether it's sports or whether it's something that we really want to see happen, uh, something that we have hope for, something that we put a lot of, we invest a lot of time in or a lot, maybe a lot of money, a lot of attention, a lot of uh, blood, sweat, and tears, no matter what it is. And it just seems elusive, elusive, elusive. That could be a promotion at work. It could be um, maybe for some people starting a family or, um, you know, for younger people finishing college or, you know, moving on into something new, a dream to have happen, uh, when it finally does happen <laughs> or begins to happen and it's been a long time, that feels amazing. <laughs> it feels amazing. And it can bring up a lot of hope and a lot of joy. And, you know, where we have a lot of choice is, do we allow ourselves to feel that or do we immediately move on to the, okay, now what's next? So like for me, I've been trying to sit in the excitement of what happened on Friday for as long as possible because now it can be easy to go, oh, okay, well, what if we lose in the playoffs? Like, well, then, you know, we, we want to keep going. Certainly you want to keep going. Uh, but it's a big enough accomplishment so far that they've made it this far. And so it got me thinking a lot about 
how we respond to those big moments when we feel them, the ones that we've invested a lot of our time and attention uh, and our hopes and our fears in. Uh, for me, the key is for this one is to simply enjoy it and be happy for it. And certainly I want them to continue to, to play and to do well. I want them to win the World Series. And if that happened, um, I'm a little worried that my head might explode. Okay, but uh, not literally, of course, <laughs> that'd be messy. But uh, I, that, I'm, I am bound and determined that no matter what happens with this postseason run uh, for the Mariners, that I am never going to forget or put away or downplay how excited I felt on Friday because that was just a super memorable moment uh, that I will always have. And I love moments like that because those moments can come back later on when difficult moments are around and provide perspective, provide comfort, provide meaning uh, in times where we really need them. And a reminder that difficult things end, <laughs> that, they, that they don't last forever. And whether that's in sports or in something else, I think is a really important lesson for all of us to remember. Okay, so uh, I knew when I asked that question, I was probably going to fill the rest of the time with it, but that's all right. Thanks so much to everybody who wrote in, uh, and please continue to write in. I'll do more of these episodes um, the more questions I get. So uh, with that in mind, thanks so much for listening to this episode of This Show is All About You. You can catch this. uh, If you missed any of this episode or any other episodes, you can get it as a podcast wherever you get your podcast. Please subscribe, leave me a comment or review. I would really appreciate it. You can also check out wordsbyjdk.com for copies of this episode as well as original writings by me. Uh, And then please reach out to me on social media. I would love to uh, field your questions there, have some conversations with you. So uh, just to give out my weekly thank yous, this show is all about you. It's produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is the in-studio producer, editor, mix master. Thanks, Eric. show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Be sure to check them out at airside.org. And the original theme music uh, for this show is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Special thanks for to contributing to this episode and all that went well for me this week has to go to Julia Cannell, Tony Dave Santabria, Bruce Bullard, Antoinette Bernardo, Stacey Heller, Cesar and Martine Garcia, Phil McCoy, Bruce Flommer, Kelly Lynch, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. Special thanks to all who were at the pub with me on Friday night. Thanks for the big hugs and the celebrations. To all the fans of the ball game on Saturday, it was fun to share that experience with you. To all of you who wrote in with questions and comments, thank you so much for supporting the show. And thanks also to whoever it is out there that makes that yellow nacho cheese sauce that I simply cannot get enough of but really probably should. You are awesome. And to all of you listeners, thank you. I couldn't do this for you without you. And finally, to send you off into the week, well, let's end with this original haiku. The rise of the new makes the value of what's old outlive all of us. Chins up, everyone. <laughs>